Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Paul writes, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. The English word friend is a term with multiple meanings. It has different depths. What is a friend? Let's say you meet somebody on the street you barely know, but both of you greet each other. Later, someone asks, who was that? And you reply, oh, just a friend of mine. Or let's say you're going through a terrible hardship. And someone visits you and lifts your spirits. When the person leaves, you're asked, who was that? And this time you answer, oh, that guy was a real friend of mine. It's the same word friend, but obviously this one word can represent different levels or depths of relationship. Perhaps Facebook has done more to muddy the meaning of the word friend than anything else. Today, the average Facebook user has 338 supposed friends. But how many of those 338 are true friends? The way I use Facebook, I've got over 3,600 friends, but there not, may, may not be a dozen that would loan me 20 bucks if I needed it. Today, you see someone on Facebook posting about their illness or a troublesome situation they're facing. And because you click that little like button, you feel as if you fulfilled an obligation of friendship. If you actually take the time to post a comment, then you've proven your best buddies. I'm sure that Facebook is a helpful tool for friends. It can reconnect you to old pals. It can keep you in touch with current ones. But Facebook also promotes a sort of pseudo-friendship with hundreds of folks without ever fulfilling the responsibilities of a real friend with any one person in particular. No late-night conversations, no personal inconveniences, no material sacrifices. Friendship on Facebook is most often a mile wide and an inch deep. See, it takes more than just sharing a thumbs up or clicking on a little heart to win a person's trust to prove your commitment Real friendship is forged by putting your money where your mouth is, by expressing your dedication to that person in a tangible, real-world kind of way. And this is not only true in the world of Facebook, it was also true 
in the first century world of Paul and the Philippians. More than letters, more than good intentions, true friends are willing to physically assist one another. Paul never set up a GoFundMe account, but if he had, I'm sure the Philippians would have been the first to contribute. The believers in Philippi were the one church that had consistently supported Paul in his ministry financially. Since Paul first shared the gospel there on the banks of the Gangites River near Philippi, and Lydia and her family became Europe's first converts, this tiny group of people had supported Paul financially, had supported he and his ministry. Other than the businesswoman Lydia, the Philippians were poor and destitute and opposed by the town's civil authorities. Yet they remain a pipeline of financial support to Paul. Even after leaving Philippi, their support continued as Paul journeyed deeper into Macedonia to Thessalonica and then to Berea and then on to the great Greek cities of Athens and Corinth. Despite the growing distance between them, the Philippians never forgot Paul and his needs. These believers were both joy-filled and certainly generous. Now Paul is imprisoned in Rome. He's some 700 miles in an ocean away from Philippi. And once more, the Philippians come through. One day, Paul looks through the bars and he sees Epaphroditus, a messenger from Philippi. He has a satchel. It's a pouch full of money. They're offering. Paul had always been able to count on the loving support of his faithful friends in Philippi. These were people who put their money where their mouth was. And he writes of their giving in verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. They gave to Paul in the good times and in the bad times, in the prosperous times and in the distressful times. In Thessalonica, when the crowds of people were flocking to Christ, they gave. And then in Berea, after he'd been kicked out of Thessalonica, they gave. In the ups and downs of his ministry, the Philippians still supported Paul with their offerings. Even in wealthy Corinth, Paul talked about how he wasn't a drain on the Corinthian church. And here's why. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 9, I was a burden to no one, for what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. It was those Philippians again. Paul was able to donate his time in Corinth to the gospel because of the support sent from Philippi. What type of friends show this kind of generosity? Well, remember what Paul said earlier in chapter 1 about the relationship that he shared with this church in Philippi. He told them this, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Notice theirs was a gospel-oriented fellowship. See, Paul and the Philippians, they weren't just golfing buddies or business associates or folks who just bumped into each other at the country club and had an occasional dinner together. Their friendship was forged around the gospel. They were drawn to a common savior. Their heart beat with the same passion to know Christ. 
When they both counted the cost, they concluded together to live as Christ, to die as gain. They agreed to let the mind of Christ, his humility, his servant-heartedness be their mindset. In terms of background and interest, Paul and the Philippians couldn't have been further apart. What does a Jewish rabbi have in common with Greek pagans? Their only commonality was what was most important. They both counted all their past claims to fame, all their hopes for the future. They considered them rubbish so they could now invest their whole life into knowing and growing in Jesus Christ. It was the gospel that had brought Paul and his friends in Philippi together. It was each other's commitment to the gospel of Jesus, to both living it out and spreading it around, that bonded them in this forever friendship. Last year, during the off-season, Atlanta's coach, Dan Quinn, brought in a group of Navy SEALs to work out with his Falcons. The SEALs taught the football players drills, emphasizing tenacity and communication and teamwork. They talked about brotherhood and the commitment to each other that goes into doing their jobs. It didn't take long for Coach Quinn to incorporate their message of brotherhood into his talks with the team. If the Falcons were going to be victorious, it would be as brothers. As corny as it first sounds, Quinn's motivational talks, they resonated. The players say it was a big key to last season's success. Let's hope it works again this season. We've got a little unfinished business left in the Super Bowl. But realize this idea of brotherhood isn't about liking or disliking a teammate's personality. This isn't a fickle thing. This isn't merely a social bond. It's about each football player's mutual commitment to pursue a championship. It's about giving it your all and expecting the same of your teammate on game day and in practice. And this is the perfect illustration of the Philippians and Paul. They were teammates bonded in the mutual pursuit of Christ. Their brotherhood was in the gospel. As I mentioned before, this is what you really need to be looking for as you go around to find a church. Not whether it's a cool crowd or whether your friends go there or if you like the music. Don't be so superficial. You need to ask yourself the question, is this group committed to the gospel? If there's no gumption for the gospel, don't waste your time. You want to commit to folks who are sold out for the gospel. These are the friendships worth forging. And this was the bond between Paul and the Philippians. This is why the Philippians were willing to support Paul, not just with their prayers, but also with their purse. Paul writes in verse 15, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. The church in Philippi had been Paul's only consistent donor. Paul was sent out from Antioch in Syria, the church there. He also had close ties with the church in Jerusalem. But when those monies dried up, it was the Philippians who remained faithful. They continued to give. Paul says, for even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again from my necessities. Philippi was a generous church. They were committed to Paul through thick and thin. 
In this venture of the gospel, Paul provided the legs and the voice. Philippi paid the bills. They were committed to the brotherhood, and they worked together with Paul for the advancement of the gospel. And yet, sadly, the Philippians were Paul's only consistent supporters. And remember, this was the Apostle Paul. I mean, no one's ministry has ever been more successful. No minister has ever been more trustworthy. And yet understand, Paul's donor list was short. Let's see. Uh, The Philippians, the Philippians, and the Philippians. And, And here is the reality with which every missionary will agree. Financial givers to the gospel were as scarce, were scarce in the first century, and they are scarce today. It's true. I read recently where Americans spend more on dog food each year than they give to their churches. There's a lot of Christians who are just tipping God. Here's a startling statistic. If every church member in America was suddenly placed on welfare, yet they still tithe their welfare check, gave 10% of their welfare check, the income of the churches in America would increase 35%. Hey, we can say we're dedicated to the gospel, that we want to see a great church, but how real can that commitment be if it doesn't reach your wallet? The Philippians put their money where their mouth was. Do you know anyone like this? The fountains flash across his lawn. His yard is full of flowers. His house has 30 rooms or more with half a dozen showers. He slumbers in a massive bed some king once owned, it seems. The table where he eats is long. The silver brightly gleams. He drives the newest foreign car that has the latest shape. He sits before a mighty desk and reads the ticker tape. He goes to church when Sunday comes. He sits up very straight, and with a pious look he drops. One dollar in the plate. Hey, when it comes to giving, some people stop at nothing. <laughs> During his sermon, this country preacher, he was, he was in the middle of his sermon, he shouted out, he said, now let this church walk. And the rest of the church chimed in, amen, let it walk. A little later, he shouted, let the church run now. He shouted again. The people shouted, amen, let it run. Finally, the preacher screamed, let this church fly. And the congregation hollered, hallelujah, brother, let it fly. That's when the preacher explained, now it's going to take a little money to get this church off the ground. Church whispered, let it walk, brother, let it walk. (laughs) This was not the attitude among the Philippians. They understood that the gospel deserved a financial investment. And they kept up their giving for years. Remember in verse 10, Paul wrote, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Apparently, there had been a break in their giving at some point. Perhaps a famine or recession had hit Philippi. Maybe the church had collected the funds, but they lacked a person who could transport them. There were no wire transfers or PayPal in the first century. 
And I'm sure that Paul missed their money. It's tough not to get a paycheck every now and then. But what concerned Paul more than the cash was not hearing from his friends in the gospel. What a joy it was to Paul when Epaphroditus finally arrived. It was so reassuring to Paul that the Philippians still cared about him. I'll let you in on a little secret. You might not believe it at first. But when you get one of those fundraising letters from a missionary asking for prayer first and then money second, don't assume that that's just religious, pious-sounding talk. I get dozens of those letters, and my reaction is, and my first reaction is always to think, come on, man, just cut to the chase, would you? I mean, you want my prayer, sure, but what you're really after is my money. Just say so. But my cynical attitude may not be true. Understand, a person who is sacrificing years of their life to serve on the mission field isn't an ordinary person in the first place. They're a Christian who's already made a radical commitment. They've already said goodbye to the money and the creature comforts that we have here. Oh, I'm sure they want our greenbacks. It takes funds to go. But for most missionaries, your prayers are just as important, if not more so. Their desire really is for your spiritual support. Paul wants the Philippians to know that he isn't rejoicing just in their check that he received. There is another reason that he's excited about their giving to the gospel. He says in verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul's primary concern was not their money. Paul wasn't greedy. As he says, not that I seek the gift. The real reason he was happy the Philippians had given to him financially were the benefits that it accrued to God and to them. To God, their gift was a sweet-smelling aroma. It satisfied the Lord. It brought him pleasure. And to the Philippians, it was fruit that abounded to their account. Now, technically speaking, Paul didn't need the Philippians' money. If God had not met Paul's financial need through them, he would have done so through someone else. But Paul appreciated the Philippians' willingness to give sacrificially and their commitment to the gospel. For their generosity was like a slab of beef sacrificed to God. Did you know that in the Old Testament, God really enjoyed his barbecue? Did you know that? It's true. This was how the Jewish priests satisfied God. They would take the pick of the litter, the best of the flock. They would marinate it in repentance and prayer, and then they would cook it on the altar. And God is similarly pleased when we give a generous offering to our church and to the work of the gospel. According to verse 17, it seems that Paul did understand what pastors face today. Whenever we talk about money, we run the risk of people judging our motivations. Folks assume, why discuss it if you're not after it? This is why Paul puts out a disclaimer. Notice he writes, not that I seek the gift. The money itself is not what I'm concerned about. It's not my motive. And let me issue the same disclaimer this morning. You guys know I almost never talk about money. If you're visiting with us for the first time today, this is a rarity. 
I trust God to supply our needs. And Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain, incidentally, had the biggest monthly offering we've ever had this past July. I have no reason this morning to try and pressure anyone to give. But when the passage I'm teaching speaks about giving money, I've got to be faithful and emphasize the meaning of the text. And that's what I want to do today. Paul is telling us that when we give a financial gift, a donation to our church or to a missionary or to any gospel enterprise, we're actually making a spiritual investment. And like any investment, it pays dividends. This is why it's important to make wise investments. Paul tells us, seek the fruit that abounds to your account. In other words, we should treat our donations to the Lord and to the ministry, that kind of giving, like we would do our retirement investing. Put your money where you think you'll get the best return. That should be our thinking. We should invest in the church or ministries that are producing solid, steady, spiritual fruit. A couple years ago, I overheard my son-in-law talk about the money he was making in the stock market. I thought, my, my, if a wet behind the ears son-in-law who knows nothing about life, incidentally, can make smart investments then an older, wiser, seasoned father-in-law ought to be able to hit the jackpot. I went online, bought a few stocks, and they immediately tanked. I lost, I lost some money, man. I'm thinking, this can't be. It finally dawned on me, if the boy was wise enough to marry my daughter, he's smarter than he looks. He's proven he's smarter than me when it comes to the stock market. I pray that he also makes wise spiritual investments. I'm praying the same for you. And when it comes to giving, I got a stock tip for you this morning. It's actually illegal because it's a little insider trading is what it is. But if you're looking for a great spiritual, uh, spiritual investment, let me suggest to you Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. This is where I heavily invest. And I've always felt I was getting a good eternal return. Hey, there are churches around that accomplish more than we do. They have greater resources on hand. But for a lot of reasons, I don't know of any church that does more with what it has than this church. You may invest elsewhere, and that's okay. But the point is, be calculating about it. Give your offering where you think you'll get a good return. Make wise spiritual investments. But by all means, invest. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. You know what that means? Give a lot, and you'll get a lot. Give a little, and you'll get a little. Hey, if some of you save for retirement like you give to God, you'll be living under a bridge by the time you're 70. You'll be living in that dark, damp room down in your kid's basement. That's where you'll be. Hey, a 401k is not where a Christian makes the most important investments. Smart financial investments might ensure a good retirement, but it's, if, but it's your spiritual investments that will ensure for you the best eternity. 
You remember what Jesus said to the rich young ruler in Matthew 19? He said, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus' words emphasize that our giving on earth determines our treasure in heaven. You can't escape it. Brian Olson of Schwab Investments, he encourages his readers to invest in their retirement. And Olson says it only takes a few minor changes to make a major difference. For example, you can give up potato chips. If you just give up that bag of potato chips you put in with your lunch, it will save you $177 per year. And if you save that potato chip money over 20 years, it'll add up to $10,483 that you can put into your nest egg. Or, and this might be a lot harder for you, you can switch from that double latte with whipped cream to a regular coffee each morning and you'll save $429 per year, and in 20 years, that'll add $27,000 to your retirement. And the same is true for our spiritual investments. Little sacrifices go a long way. Take your potato chip and your coffee savings and give it to a missionary. Did you know with just those two small changes, you can put a full-time missionary on the mission field? Can you imagine? Well, Paul hopes that the Philippians will continue to be generous givers and to make spiritual investments in the furtherance of the gospel. But he also knows that if they never give him another dime, he'll be just fine. For in verse 19, God makes an amazing promise. Paul writes, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. When you give to the Lord, you you always wonder, what's going to happen to me? If I give this much to the Lord, if I give this to this, you know, how am I going to pay my rent? How am I going to pay my bills? Here Paul answers the question. God, your God, my God, will supply all our need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul frees us up to give. This promise frees us up to give. What a promise it is. Paul could rest assured that God's work done God's way will never lack God's supply. The Greek word translated supply here means to fill up or to fill to the full. It denotes an an abundance. I love what Nancy Spiegelberg writes. She says, Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain in asking any small drop of refreshment. If only I had known you better. I'd have come running with a bucket. And God will fill your bucket to the brim if you bring it to him. Of course, God supplies our need, not our greed. Verse 19 is not a blank check for anyone's selfishness. In fact, it's heretical for pastors to portray God as some heavenly vending machine. You plug in a request and out pops whatever you want. God doesn't work that way. I mean, what responsible father would do that to his child? It's been said children are like stomachs. They don't need everything you can afford to give them. And the same is true of God's children. God promises to meet our needs. He's not going to cater to our self-indulgence. And yet when it comes to what we need, God doesn't hold back. 
How much of our need does he supply? What does Paul say? All. My God shall supply all your need. And notice God's supply is not given out of his riches. No, it's given according to his riches in glory. You see, if I were a millionaire and I gave you 100 bucks, I'd be giving out of my riches. But if I gave you $100,000, I'd be giving according to my riches. And this is how God satisfies our needs. According to his riches, he fills us up to the brim. Paul writes to the Ephesians, God does exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. We just need to trust him. Paul wraps up the body of this letter by turning his prose to praise. His theology suddenly becomes doxology. He's so enthralled with God's generosity. He sings out, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is worthy of all the glory. And then Paul closes his letter as he does all his letters with greetings and salutations. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Now remember, in Paul's eyes, a saint wasn't some super Christian with some special devotion. We're all saints. The word means set apart, dedicated to God. And this refers to us all if we know Christ. Paul would tell a person that you're either a saint or you're an ain't. You're in Christ or you're outside Christ. And the Philippians had proven that one way to show this is by putting your money where your mouth is. He also says, the brethren who are with me greet you. Now, who was with Paul at the time? Obviously, Timothy. He was the co-author of the letter. Who else? We don't know. But apparently, Paul had a small posse with him, for here he writes, the brethren or the brotherhood greet you. And then Paul makes a marvelous statement. He says, all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. Now, remember, Paul is in prison in Rome. He's awaiting trial before the emperor himself. He was probably in the custody of the Praetorian Guard. This was a small band of elite soldiers who were assigned to the royal household's personal protection. Every time a shift change took place and a new soldier took over the post next to Paul, it became another opportunity for Paul to share with him the gospel. In chapter 1, Paul took joy in his incarceration for it had occurred, he says, for the furtherance of the gospel. You can be sure that every soldier heard about Christ Some of them were saved. Lives were changed, no doubt. And apparently, the gospel had spread. A mini revival had broken out in the Caesar's royal palace. Imagine the cooks and the maids and the janitors and the bellhops who served in the palace also attended to the barracks. This meant that converted soldiers were sharing their faith with the domestic workers. The gospel was on the move. Paul probably had Bible studies seven days a week. I wonder if any of the emperor's own family came to faith. One thing's for sure, the gospel of Jesus is a force that cannot be contained. It's amazing to me, but in just a few short years, we now see the gospel, something that was born on the outskirts of the empire. It has now invaded the very palace of the emperor. The gospel's a powerful force. Paul adds to the list of saints who were with him, especially those 
who were of Caesar's household. They too sent their greetings to the brotherhood in Philippi. And then Paul concludes his letter in verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. This is a fitting end. Paul directs his readers to God's grace. The Philippians and Paul not only shared a passion for the gospel, but they shared an appreciation of God's grace. It's interesting, he ends the letter as he began it. He said in chapter 1, verse 7, you are all partakers with me of grace. Now, as we've said now for the last 12 weeks, as we've studied through Philippians, this book is about finding joy at half-mast. When the Queen of England is in residence in her palace, a flag flies from the top of that palace. And likewise, joy is the flag that indicates King Jesus is residing in the Christian's life. But here's what we've learned. That joy still flaps. That flag still flies even at half-mast. Even in times of grief and loss and trials and suffering, joy can still be had. In Christ, we can reach out by faith and we can take joy. We can rejoice. We can grab on to the joy of Jesus, even in the worst of circumstances. This past week, I saw an example of this up close and personal. A friend of mine suffered a family tragedy. Alan Joyner pastors Wellspring Church just outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. He and his wife, Judy, are faithful servants to the Lord and to their church. Last Sunday night, in the wee hours of the morning, the Joyner's house caught on fire. The blaze quickly spread from the basement throughout the house. Everyone escaped, but the house was a total loss. No one was injured, and Alan had his insurance paid up. That's a good thing. He knows that it could have been a lot worse. And he realizes that God has promised to supply all his need. When we talked this past week, he was still rejoicing. Even in a joyless situation, Alan had grabbed on to Jesus' joy. Later, Alan posted on Facebook some photos of his house. At least the charred ruins of what was left. Here's a photo of his living room. And notice the only item in the room that didn't burn. It's in the front corner of the room, right under the window. There's a gold plaque. And an up close of that plaque reveals its message. John 15, where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. The survival of that plaque unburned, unscorched, uncharred, was a message to the joiners to take joy that God is at work even in the midst of our losses. If the Lord puts them on your heart, let me encourage you to pray for Pastor Allen and his family, but more so, model his example. There is joy in Jesus, and it is yours for the taking, but it requires faith. Are you a gospel-oriented person? Are you a member of this brotherhood? Here's how I want to close Paul's wonderful letter to the church at Philippi. I want you to listen again to the highlights. Chapter 1, verse 6. 
being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Chapter 2, verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Chapter 3, verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Chapter 4, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And finally, chapter 4, verse 19. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. May these truths echo in our hearts forever.